Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and here we are with part three of Tears. I think we had an interruption between parts two and three, but but here we are to conclude the series. That's right. So uh, as with our past episodes where we've kind of just, we've done uh, part one, then part two, and then a part three, and maybe more, uh, this one is going to, there's going to be a lot of uh, catching up on things that we, we've discussed a little bit on previous episodes. There's going to be some new stuff. Uh, it's... Uh, uh, I'm not saying it's disorganized, uh, but it's going to be um, just a. <laughs> what are you can, getting at, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's more or it's more organic. It's like we we are we are exploring and reporting back, uh, almost in real time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so um, uh, yeah, one th- one area I wanted to start with, I just wanted to share uh, this little bit that I read in Adult Crying from 2001 by Nico Van Heringen. And, and in it, uh, the author here is just sharing uh, just a couple of tidbits about how ancient societies thought about tears. Quote, in antique science, it was believed that tears came from the heart. Egyptians, about 1500 BCE, the brain, and this they attribute to uh, Hippocrates from the 5th and 4th centuries BCE, or glands at the puncta lacrimalis, uh, attributed to Galen in the 2nd century CE. However, after Stinson described the tear ducts and the main lacrimal gland in 1662, it was accepted that tears originated there. Yeah, there are a ton of great beliefs from the ancient world about the the anatomical origins of tears. Ideas about like uh, when you're feeling a swelling of emotion that makes a bunch of vapors condense in your heart and then they rise up mm-hmm. to your head and have to leak out through your eyes. Uh, that's a good one. Um, but I particularly like the idea of Galen that the tears come from the puncta in the eyelids, these little holes, uh, which are actually the holes through which tears drain out of the eyes, because this is the same misconception that I had before I started reading about the anatomy of the eye and the tear ducts. Uh, remember in part one, we talked about how the, the tears are actually secreted by the lacrimal gland, which is above the eye, sort of above the eye mm-hmm. into the outside. Uh, and then they drain away through these puncta eventually into uh, the lacrimal sac and the and the tear ducts in the nasal cavity through th- the, those are located on the inside of the eyes and apparently I haven't tried to look in my own eyes but I have seen images of this I, apparently you can actually see your own puncta lacrimalis the little holes in your eyelids that tears drain away through if you look really close I believe I, I've, I've, I've spotted mine before yeah uh, but but looking at them and thinking this is where the tears come from, it's like if you were to look at a bathtub and say, ah, this hole in the bottom, this is from which the waters rise and fill the tub for my bath. Right. Uh, but of course, if that is how you're filling your bathtub, something is wrong. <laughs> you should not get into that tub. <laughs> oh, revisiting our theme of uh, uh, the, the tear ducts being the sewer of the eye. Yeah. <laughs> Now, uh, as far as tears emerging from the brain, I really love that idea, too, because uh, on one hand, it is it's kind of correct in a sense uh, mm-hmm. when you're talking about emotional tears, especially. But uh, the idea that like tears are in some level like brain juice, uh, I think that's lovely, especially when we're talking about how tears are generally seen as a, as a kind of pure uh, emission of the body. Uh, but if we were to think of them as, as the leakings of, of an emotional brain, uh, or an enraged brain or what have you uh, it, it paints a different picture 
Now, one interesting thing we have heard back from a couple of listeners uh, about is uh, we, we've gotten some resistance to the idea we discussed in previous episodes that humans are the only animals that are known to cry tears as an emotional response, to shed liquid out of their lacrimal glands in response to emotions, which uh, we want to be very clear is not the same as saying that other animals don't feel emotions. It's right. just that tears are a particular behavioral anatomical response to emotions that appears to only be present in Homo sapiens. Other animals can have all kinds of complex emotions that we maybe couldn't even begin to fathom. They just don't particularly seem to have this response to liquid coming out of the eyes as a result. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it turns out that this conviction that animals must shed emotional tears of some kind does seem to be it does seem to go pretty pretty far back with people making case reports here and there. I was reading an article that I'm definitely going to return to in this episode uh, that was by uh, uh, by Ad Vingerhoots, who is a Dutch psychologist who's a researcher on tears, who uh, we've mentioned in uh, the previous episodes, and we'll come back to again today. And Lauren M. Bilsma in Emotion Review in 2016, and they discuss the idea of emotional tears in in non-human animals. They say that there have been uh, reports of emotional tearfulness in horses and lions. This goes back to Pliny the Elder. Mm -hmm. uh, in crocodiles, this goes back to Elian, uh, who who was a uh, who wrote in the second century CE, I think. Uh, to to like Shakespeare talking about how deer can weep emotionally. Uh, of course, reports of elephants crying emotional tears. This is something we can come back to in a minute. Uh, gorillas and so forth. But despite these case reports, they say that the best systematic studies uh, that that involved surveys of veterinarians, zookeepers, and other professionals who who work with animals on a regular basis or in a scientific capacity has essentially yielded no evidence at all of emotional tears in any animal species other than humans. So it really does seem to be a uniquely human trait. But it is fun to look into to it, to, to, to answer the question, why have we come to believe or, or say that certain animals shed tears? Right. So uh, let's start uh, with the idea of, of crocodile tears because uh, yeah this this is a fun one because it touches on croc biology folk belief and of course alligator persons in the bog and fog um <laughs> i also wonder if part of it comes from <laughs> from a western bias against non-spontaneous weeping uh which uh, i'll get into a little bit later and i think i've touched on in previous episodes um a western bias against it in their own culture but also how it uh, is utilized in other cultures uh, the idea that tears on purpose cannot be real tears, uh, and and as we'll discuss, this does not seem to be the case. But anyway, the idea with the crocodile here is that a crocodile sheds false tears for the prey it has just killed, and this tends to depict something sinister about the crocodile and something duplicitous about the human you're talking about, because generally that's what we're talking about. Like, oh, that politician's shedding crocodile tears. This person's shedding crocodile tears, which is to say they're putting on... Uh, a false face of emotion. They're intentionally uh, being emotional, or even if you're maybe in some literal cases, they're literally shedding tears and you doubt the authenticity of those tears. Yeah. And the idea of crocodile tears as something that's sort of like called out by the people, by the writers of natural histories and regarded in some way as evil or suspect does go back further 
than the idea of crocodile tears as a specific case of hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading. There's a section about the history of the concept of crocodile tears in uh, Ad Vingerhoot's book uh, "Why Only Humans Weep." Unraveling the Mysteries of Tears. This is uh, from Oxford University Press, 2013. Uh, so Vingerhoots is tracing this idea, and he mentions a writer, a, a bishop, a Christian bishop named St. Asterius, who was writing around the year 400, who wrote that, quote, Crocodiles mourn over the human heads they devour and weep not from repentance, but because heads have no edible flesh. Uh, and so I like that. That's not quite yet to the idea of hypocrisy, but it is saying something about like the, 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 I don't know, the crocodile is so greedy and so cruel that even when it's got a human head in its mouth, it's not satisfied. It's just like, this is not good enough meat. This is just so depressing. This head is, is yeah. garbage. Now, in terms of, of actually observing crocodiles and, uh, you know, the, the eyes of the crocodiles. Uh, so yes, Crocodiles do have non-emotional tears uh, because they do have to keep their eyes lubricated. And apparently if they've been out of the water for a spell, these tears may be more noticeable and may, uh, you know, and may, and may be observed while the animal is feeding. If it is you know, feeding or messing around with, uh, with some sort of a, a carcass uh, on the shore. Uh, I was looking around in a 2006 study at the University of Florida found that there does seem to be something to these observations. And it, but it, uh, in, in, by that, I mean that people may have observed crocodiles appearing to shed tears that, to be clear, are not emotional tears. Uh, but it mm-hmm. may be just due to warm air forced through the sinuses during feeding, pushing out uh, more liquid. Oh, okay. So this would just be like a, uh, to the extent that this could actually be something you would observe, it's just a sort of coincidental byproduct of what the animal is doing with its head while it's eating. Um, yeah. It's like if you're observing certain varieties of, um, of, of, uh, of iguanas that, uh, that swim in, the, in salt water, and then they're blasting salt out of their face when they're on the, uh, as they do when they're on the shore. Like, that is not emotional crying. Uh, it's, 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 you can also say that's not even crying. That's a step beyond. But yeah, we, we can't take this uh, anatomical process and say that this, is, this might be some sort of an emotional uh, outpouring, that it has anything to do with what's going on with human emotional tears. Though many years later, this did develop into the idea that, that is the, the origin of the expression crocodile tears now, that, that the crocodile will, will sort of weep false tears as a way of eliciting sympathy from a victim or like luring someone close to them and then, uh, and then it will bite them and weep while it's eating them. Imagine uh, if that was an adaptive trait. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that would work. <laughs> we see a crocodile crying and we're like, oh, oh, little buddy. <laughs> He's sad about it. Clearly, we can't lash out. Uh, but you should, you know, don't lash out at crocodiles anyway. Uh, but um, the the other major uh, animal that you sometimes see discussions about regarding their, their potential tears uh, these involve the elephant. And we actually heard from at least one listener, I think more than one, who wrote in on the topic of elephants allegedly shedding emotional tears. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, you do see this still make the rounds on, say, social media. And part of this is, you know, elephants are sometimes in in tough situations and they do do seem to have, have, you know, fairly complex emotional lives. Uh, So we're not denying 
uh, that that elephants have emotions. Uh, and and when we're looking at some of these scenarios, you know, we want elephants to be able to cry to a certain extent. Like we we knowing that they have emotions, we want to give them human tears. And you right. have various accounts that make the rounds on the Internet about them shedding emotional tears. Like, look at this baby elephant. It's in a tough spot. It's shedding tears. Look at this mother elephant. Uh, something horrible happened. She is she is shedding tears. She is uh, displaying emotion and we can connect with it. Well, I mean, again, I think this might be actually illustrative of something about the importance of tears as a social signal between humans, that we, we have this instinct that says if if an animal is experiencing real important emotions, they must be capable of shedding tears, which again, it, it does not follow at all. Like, you know, an animal could have perfect, it could have stronger emotions than humans do and just not have this behavioral response to them. Absolutely. So we are not denying elephants complex emotional states, but we will deny them tear ducts because that's exactly what evolution has denied them. Uh, and, and this is where it gets really fascinating. I, I, I was not familiar with this or I had, you know, one of these things I had maybe read in the past and it didn't really like, you know, strike strike a chord with me. Mm-hmm. But facts are facts. Not only do they lack tear ducts, they actually lack all of the plumbing associated with mammalian tears. So no glands, no ducts, no canals, nothing. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, they retain mucus glands, uh, but nothing else. So one theory as to why uh, why this is the case is that they seem to have evolved through a semi-aquatic past and lost their tear systems during that time, much like modern uh, pinnipeds lack tear glands and tear ducts. Oh, this is funny. So there may sort of be an aquatic ape uh, equivalent of the the elephant, uh, the elephant's evolutionary ancestor, the sort of uh, a life more based in in wading around in the water. And right. Okay. But it's doing the opposite of what, you know, we got into right. that in the, the previous episode about uh, the hypothesis that uh, that human tears and our ability to shed emotional tears are somehow connected to a supposed aquatic ape past. Uh, well, here's a creature uh, uh, with, uh, with what seems to be a, at least semi-aquatic past, and it lost the ability to shed tears like other mammals do uh, during the transformation. Interesting. So, so what is going on with elephant eyes? Okay, so with the elephant, so the thing is, you still your eyes still need to be moist. Uh, that's that's the the important thing here. You can't you, know, you can't do without it. So with the elephant, other glands around the eye were essentially repurposed through evolution to provide moisture to the eye. So there's a third eyelid gland. Um, we've talked about third eyelids before. You know, this is like you have the, the uh, eyelid one and two are the the ones that we have, the the top and the bottom. But then a lot of animals have a have a third as well that is involved. So the, the third eyelid gland was an accessory gland repurposed. The third eyelid gland is found on other animals as well, but in the elephant, it's extremely well-developed to make up what, for what was lost. And there are also some other tier cocktail differences with the elephant tears as well uh, due to these changes. So, you can, uh, so scientists have been able to like, look at the substance of the, of, of the, 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 the moisture, uh, the liquid in an elephant's eye, and they can, they can see that, well, the, the actual chemical makeup of it is a little different from what you would find in, in uh, you know, typical mammalian tears. Okay, so despite their different ocular anatomy, they've got some kind of liquid uh, combination of like mucus and, and, and oils and some kind of liquid that may be on and around the eye, and that's just sort of hanging out there. Now, if they don't have tear ducts through which these things would be 
draining away, where does the liquid go? Ah, and that is where a lot of these observations of elephant tears come from. Um, they end up look like they're crying because, the, again, their eyes don't have drainage canals. Their eyes just fill up and then st it streams down the face. Sometimes there's even a foam due to the accumulation of sebum and mucus. Hmm. And this is fascinating, too, because this reminds me of, of my son's issues with his tear ducts. Having, uh, like, that was, that was the reason his, his, uh, his eyes would well up with tears so easily, not because he was you know, emotional or, uh, or anything. It's just the drainage was, was messed up. Hmm. Uh, so he would, his eyes would well with tears just by virtue of not having a good drainage system in place until it was corrected with a tube. Ah, so if it's just common for elephants to have sort of liquid mucus, various things sort of dr dripping out of their eyes as a standard feature of, of what's going on with their ocular anatomy, and then you pair that with elephants sometimes being in situations where they appear to be experiencing emotions, probably are experiencing something that you could call emotions, and you, you pair those two things together and you think, oh, the elephant is weeping because of its situation. Absolutely, yeah. So it's it's fascinating. I love how this it how this, this turns uh, what we think about regarding mammalian tears on its head, and of course it plays into our 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 tendency to want to see human emotions, not only human emotions, but but human uh, anatomy in other creatures. Uh, and uh, if anyone wants to learn more about this, I have to say that uh, Rachel Garner has a great post on this at whyanimalsdothething.com. Uh, it's <laughs> it's well cited and well written. I highly recommend it. All right, well, to come back to the subject of human tears and the evolutionary explanation for why liquid comes out of our eyes when we're experiencing strong emotions, why this unique behavioral reaction that humans have to their own emotional states and to the emotional states of others, uh, I wanted to come back to, to this author I've mentioned several times now, the Dutch psychologist Ad Vingerhoots. Um, and one thing I wanted to start off with was, uh, so there was a paper I cited a few minutes ago uh, as a resource for the claim about uh, other animals uh, in, in these systematic surveys of veterinarians and, and zookeepers and stuff, uh, not, not showing emotional tears. That same paper published in Emotion Review in 2016 by Vingerhoots and Lauren M. Bilsma. That's a good paper because uh, they review a bunch of the different sort of findings about human tears and, and their uniqueness all in the same place. And th they argue that crying should be considered a unique human behavior that, quote, obeys the laws of operant conditioning and is under the influence of biological, psychological, and social factors. It is not merely a reflex symptom. It is a complex behavior that appears to have uh, that have that has some kind of biological genetic precedent, and then is strongly influenced in its expression by situational factors, both psychological and social. And they point out some other interesting facts that sort of help solidify the question of the question we're looking at here. Uh, and one of these goes like this: So, okay, acoustical crying, the the sound a baby makes is obviously an attachment behavior that maintains the proximity of the parent. I think this is pretty clear that this is the main function of a baby crying. The, the crying of a baby draws the parent near to provide care, protection, and feeding. And this kind of thing is necessary for helpless human infants because human infants can do essentially nothing for themselves. They are uh, they are all, they are exceptionally helpless as far as uh, young animals go. Now, at some point, uh, we know that newborn babies 
uh, cannot yet shed tears, but at a certain point, point, tears leaking out of the eyes become a standard part of the crying repertoire. So when when babies are displaying this attachment behavior, this uh, this acoustical crying in order to summon the care of a parent, it starts incorporating tears as part of that behavioral repertoire. And then the interesting fact is that as people get older tears could be seen to in some ways replace acoustical crying. So as we age, as we get older, people tend to cry less frequently. And when they do cry, they don't display the acoustical wailing properties of crying as much as babies do. Instead, they just shed the tears. And that's an interesting fact as well. Why are tears retained into adulthood in a way that the wailing of a baby is usually not? Another interesting developmental fact about the role of crying is the effect of uh, physical pain on the tear response. So the authors mm-hmm. here write that, quote, until adolescence, physical pain is a very important trigger of tears, but for adults and the elderly, it no longer plays a significant role. However, feelings of loss and powerlessness seem to remain important for crying throughout the lifespan. So when when children get physically hurt, when they're feeling physical pain, they scuff their knee or something, crying is a very common response. That mostly goes away in adulthood. Adults rarely cry as a result of physical pain and instead maintain specifically emotional pain, feelings of loss and powerlessness or helplessness as the primary triggers of emotional tears. This is interesting. I uh, Thinking about... Um about times that I've been hurt, uh, physically hurt as a, as, as a, as an adult, like the, the one example that I can remember where I was hurt and I really had to choke back tears was when, um, I was with my, my son who at the time was very young and he was, uh, he was looking into a cooler full of ice cream at a store, you know, a public place. And I leaned over to look in as well, right above him. And then he excitedly hopped up and like did a, like a, a, a leaping headbutt into my lower jaw, uh, like just like a, a like a child uppercut, and oh, uh, and 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 it really really hurt for a second. It was like you know it's like being punched um, mm. uh, with with an uppercut, and uh, and I like I, I had to walk away for just a second, like not out of the uh-huh. store, but just a few feet away, <laughs> and I, I I felt like I felt like tears of 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 uh, associated with the pain, but of course that's a more complex situation there because it's like you're, you're there with your son, you're in a public mm-hmm. place. Uh, I'm guessing there might be some level of like, like maybe I'm trying to, uh, you know, on, on some level, it's like my pain needs to be uh, related to the child who otherwise mm-hmm. is not going to understand what happened. Cause I think, you know, I don't think he'd really even picked up as much language at that point. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's the only time I can think of where it's like a, a physical pain plus uh, something that, that provoked tears. Yeah, and it's not that adults never cry tears in response to physical pain. It's just dramatically less frequent than it is mm-hmm. for children. Yeah. Yeah, with with young children, ooh, it's like it's everything. You know, it's the, the skin knee, it's the uh the bumped yeah. toe. Or but then weirdly, uh the thing I always found amazing is that it was it, it was it wasn't like clockwork. Like a child would also just like sometimes they would they would slightly fall over and if they were in the in the wrong mood then the tears would flow and they'd need to be comforted. Yeah. But other times they'd be into playing something and they'll take a fall that would just, just lay out an adult for the rest of the day and they just pop right back up and they're, they, they don't care. There's no emotional response in those situations. Well, I kind of can't help but immediately go to thoughts about um, 
helplessness versus agency in those different situations and and where the the situations where as a kid I remember sort of like popping right back up after an injury or the times when I'm sort of like really engaged in a task and I can mm-hmm. continue it. Yeah. You know, like I don't feel like I've got to stop, but when you feel like you're hurt in a way that makes you want to stop doing what you're doing, that's when the tears would come on, it would seem. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and that may tie into the idea of like, okay, now that I'm no longer in activation mode, but I'm in sort of like receiving care mode. Okay. It's time to cry. Cause I need, yeah. I need a parent. I need comfort. I need help. So I guess here is a good place to come back and briefly describe a few more of the hypotheses that have been offered over the years about possible evolutionary explanations for emotional tears in humans. Um, in, in previous episodes, we discussed a handful of these that were probably we, we judged on the wrong track, like the, uh, the, the smoke from funeral pyres idea, which, which mm-hmm. seemed to lack a, lack a coherent mechanism for how that would become a genetic behavior, or, um, or talking about the detoxification hypothesis, which had a number of strong arguments against it. In the previous episode, uh, we at least concluded, or at least I, I remember saying, I, I'm pretty well convinced that whatever the intrapersonal uh, function of crying may be, and it may have some functions like that, I think, I think I'm probably convinced that the primary evolutionary justification for adult crying of emotional tears is interpersonal, is a, is a social signal of some kind that is supposed to have an effect on other people around you, maybe to elicit caregiving from them, uh, to get them to help you, maybe to neutralize aggression, things like that. But anyway, I, I wanted to sketch a few more of these uh, these hypotheses uh, and uh, a note that most of what I'm about to say here comes from summaries of these views that are that are in that uh, book by Ad Vingerhoots, Why Only Humans Weep. Uh, so, so this is his take on these different hypotheses, including some of his criticisms of them. So one idea that this one was actually kind of interesting, even though there are pretty strong arguments against it, uh, is the idea of crying as a mucus defense. Mm. So around the year 1960, the British-American anthropologist Ashley Montague argued that tears began as a mechanism to protect against the dehydration of an infant's airways during distress vocalizations. And it would go something like this. A baby needs something. The baby begins to scream and wail for help. It wants a parent. And this causes a lot of rapid inhalation and exhalation through the nose and mouth. And this rapid airflow could potentially dry out the protective layers of mucus that are present in places like the nasal cavity. Now, we don't often stop to appreciate our mucus, but your nasal mucus is a wonderful, beautiful thing. It is a wonderful biological adaptation that is extremely important. It protects the body against uh, you know, irritating contaminants like dust and things, but it also, very importantly, protects the body against infection. The, the mucus in your nose is a major first line of defense against pathogens entering the body and infecting you. And so under Montague's hypothesis, uh, the tears that drain into the nasal passage through the tear ducts help keep this passage from drying out, especially during uh, times of heightened airflow like the screaming and wailing that would uh, accompany a child's uh, vocal distress signals. Uh, This is further backed up by the idea that tears also contain a natural enzyme called lysozyme, which has antibacterial properties which would seemingly provide further evidence that the the shedding of tears during distress vocalizations may be helping to protect the body from infection. So 
interesting idea, but Vingerhoots has several arguments against this hypothesis that uh, that I, I think are worth considering. Uh, first of all, he says, you know, well, babies don't shed tears for the first several weeks of their life, as we discussed in a previous episode. Uh, this would be at a time when they would probably be the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Another big strike against it is that we don't see a tear response in in reaction to other activities, especially like exercise that cause rapid inhalation and exhalation, which could potentially dry out this mucus and sometimes does dry it out. If you go out, you know, running in the cold, like your your airways can get very dry. Oh man, can you imagine what tennis shoe commercials would be like if uh, if, if if rapid tear shedding was part of exercise? Yeah, that's hilarious. Well, I mean, one thing Nike commercials and all this. Why is it that athletic shoe commercials are always so wet? I mean, I understand it's true that people sweat when they exercise, but like those commercials really want to show you the moisture. They're always showing like like beads dripping off of people's elbows and things. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. No, they want to drive home the physical exertion and the uh, I don't know, probably the sexiness of glistening bodies. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, maybe. And uh, I know uh, you know water catches the light. It's maybe it's just more interesting to shoot. Looks good in slow motion. Yeah, I, I yeah. can see that. But anyway, I I think that's a pretty big strike against this hypothesis. You would kind of think that if it worked like this, other activities that could cause drying out of the the mucous membranes in the nose would also elicit tears, uh, and it it just doesn't work that way. Uh, Also, why would other mammals not have a similar adaptation? So interesting, but I think some pretty strong strikes against it. Um, So there's another hypothesis Vingerhoots talks about which is the idea of crying as a sort of uh, a way for adults to temporarily become a child. This one is attributed to a Dutch ethologist named Franz. Uh, oh, I should have looked up how to pronounce this R O E S. That might be Rose or Russ maybe. Um, but it goes like this. So most adult mammals seem to be born with genetically determined instinctual tendencies to react to physical markers of infancy with nurturing behaviors and with reduced aggression. You know, why do we have such a deep biological reaction to things that are cute? And why does cuteness almost perfectly correspond to the characteristics of infancy? Uh, These are the things that are sometimes called the infant schema. Things like uh, having a large head, having uh, large low-lying eyes on that head, having bulging cheeks. You can look for this in everything from uh, cute cartoon characters to stuffed animals. Almost anything and everything that is supposed to be cute in some way mimics babies or mimics infants of other closely related mammal species. And this is even true of like inanimate objects, like um, inanimate objects that people find cute tend to be small and Mm -hmm. tend to maybe in some way look kind of helpless like a baby. Yeah, yeah. Uh, This reminds me of how, especially in in anime, but I I think you see this in Western animation as well. There's this tendency when something's being super cute, sometimes the the eyes are made to just well with tears, like they're just vibrating with moisture. Very good observation, and and I think that's uh, some significant support for, at least in part, this idea, because it seems that there – so obviously there are these infant schema, things that, that look like babies in one way or another, tend to just powerfully trigger us to reduce aggression, to increase care and nurturing behaviors, to make us say, oh, and want to approach and take care of whatever that thing is, even if it's like a, like a little like inanimate chair that's just kind of you know, cute and stubby in some way. 
incredibly powerful instinct. But anyway, so there are elements of this infant schema that are based not only on static physical appearance, but in behavior. Uh, so here I want to read directly from Fingerhoots as he describes this. Quote, Juvenile birds and primates sometimes behave like helpless newborns, particularly in begging situations. For example, a young hungry sparrow with a well-developed ability to fly may, in the presence of a parent, helplessly shake its wings, imitating the poorly coordinated wing movements of newly hatched offspring to support its begging for food. Uh, and then he also writes, uh, Quote, in chimpanzees, the pout face, which is the typical expression of youngsters when separated from their mother, can be observed in older animals when they are begging. Hmm. If juveniles that behave in this way receive more food and support than those that do not display such behavior, this imitation will increase their fitness and thus has the potential to become part of the behavioral repertoire of a species even beyond its infancy. Hmm. So, in given all this, uh, Rose or Russ argued that human crying, including the shedding of liquid from the eyes, was selected by evolution for this reason, because it made the faces of juveniles and then even adults resemble more closely the faces of helpless newborn infants. And we are we're just strongly programmed to react to the faces of helpless newborn infants with nurturing, caring behaviors, such as, say, giving things to them or not responding to them with aggression. Mm -hmm. So under this hypothesis, crying even in adults is a way of triggering sort of the neural cuteness alarm in our heads to turning us into infant caregivers, even when the person crying is not actually an infant. Um, and this is summarized with, with a number of different ways that, that uh, the, the moistening of the eyes with tears could make someone more closely resemble a newborn. These points would include, and this is uh, from, from Fingerhoot's summary here, quote, the moistening of the face, which may remind us of the faces of newborns wet with amniotic fluid, the uncoordinated, almost spasmodic respiration, which is similar to the initial respiratory uh, efforts of a newborn, the correspondence of the acoustical aspects of human crying to the separation or distress calls of other animals, the closed eyes, the wrinkled skin around the eyes, the spotted coloration of the facial skin, and the open mouth, all of which are typical crying expressions shared with newborns. So this could have some arguments against it. For example, it still wouldn't explain why emotional tears would be unique to humans as opposed to, say, other primates, but it could be partially on the right track. Hmm. Now, I want to go lightly over uh, a couple more uh, that he mentions. One is uh, the idea of crying as a symbolic representation of suffering. Uh, this mm -hmm. one is attributed to the Spanish ophthalmologist Juan Marube, uh, though, uh, though Wingerhoots notes that the American neuroscientist Robert Provine has offered a similar explanation. And here the idea is that crying is a social signal of emotional pain that is adapted from the reflex tear response that comes from certain types of physical pain. And this would have some precedent in animal behavior because animals seem to have evolutionarily developed social signals uh, to one another that are based on the appearance of behaviors that are originally not for signaling. For example, the idea that uh, the social signal of anger represented by bared teeth maybe based on originally non-communicative eating behaviors. Uh, so maybe the idea is, you know, originally an animal that looks like it is 
intently like gnawing on a bone or eating or something. You Mm -hmm. don't want to like approach that animal and try to mess with it because, you know, you're getting in between it and its food. Maybe you could sort of like re uh, like play on that instinct by showing your teeth to another animal, even while you're not eating this saying like, I I am, you know, don't mess with me right now. Or similarly, like uh, the, the social signal of disgust may be based on originally non-communicative rejection behaviors like vomiting or spitting out food are are Mm -hmm. the faces we make that others can see when we're disgusted by something kind of look like spitting out faces or vomiting faces. And under this hypothesis, tears could maybe be similar. Maybe what was originally a reflexive secretion of liquid in the eyes in response to physical irritation of the eyes, some kind of pain or irritation, came to be a useful signal of pain to other members of our species. It was it was useful in a survival sense to know when somebody else was in pain and may need help, and this could become abstracted to types of pain other than physical irritation of the eyes. Specifically, emotional pain. There's another hypothesis that Vingerhoots mentions that uh, is attributed to a science writer named Chip Walter, who argues that crying may be a uh, an important part of social bonding development in the history of the human species. Uh, it might be a sort of honest signal of genuine need due to what could be called a handicapping principle. Basically the fact that, uh, you know, that you would make really loud noises of helplessness and risk drawing predators nearby means you must really need help. Um, honestly, I was a little fuzzy on how this mechanism was, was supposed to work. Uh, but then the next one I, I found interesting, and this ties into something we talked about in a previous episode, the hypothesis that, that emotional tears in adults are an honest appeasement signal. Uh, and this is traced back to the Israeli evolutionary biologist, Oren Hassan, who argued that, Hey, tears blur our vision. And by blurring our vision, they make it difficult for us to be at peak fighting fitness. And so if it's more difficult to enact violence or aggression while your eyes are full of tears, Hassan would argue that tears are adaptive because they are an honest signal of decreased capacity for violence. Kind of like a dog rolling on its back and showing you its belly. It's like, hey, I'm I'm putting myself in a really vulnerable situation. Don't hurt me. It's a kind of hard-to-fake white flag of surrender signaling, I am currently helpless and will not harm you. Please help me, or at least please don't hurt me. Hmm. So under this hypothesis, tears would be adaptive because they help facilitate social trust. Now, whether or not this is truly a primary factor in the evolutionary of tears, this Hassan Hassan white flag of surrender hypothesis, I do think it picks up on something that we were talking about earlier that I think seems almost undeniable, which is that tears are strongly, strongly linked with helplessness as a condition. Studies that look into, uh, you know, cases like when do adults actually cry? These studies tend to find that the adults often report the kinds of situations in which they're most likely to cry are ones which in some way or other they feel helpless or feel a lack of control. Of course, as we talked about earlier, the role of crying in infants, both acoustical crying, you know, vocal crying and tearful crying is quite literally a signal of helplessness. It is because the infant is literally helpless and cannot do anything for itself and is requesting that a parent come to help them. 
And so I do feel like this is probably a pretty strong factor to consider when evaluating these different hypotheses, which, you know, individual ones we've just talked about may or may not be correct to varying degrees. But I do think that in adults, tearful crying is is very strongly linked to helplessness and probably serves some important social signal of helplessness. And and the signals of helplessness could take multiple forms. They could elicit assistance and social support, saying, you know, I am currently helpless and need care, or they could neutralize aggression. I am currently helpless and can't represent a threat to you. Please don't hurt me. Uh, and, and I think this is interesting because you can even see this in negative reactions to crying. Like, when are the situations when people are the least tolerant of other people crying? It's in situations where you would be the least tolerant of somebody being helpless, right? You, it's when somebody is supposed to be useful and responsible in, say, like the workplace or in the military or something that like people would react really negatively to seeing somebody else burst into tears. Which, I mean, I, I, I do have to mention, I think that I think that's ultimately pretty crappy. Like, you, oh, of course, no matter yeah, what but, the situation is, like if, if someone is, is having emotional tears like there's something going on, be it uh, be it actual feelings of help, helpful, helplessness, or or they are, um, you know, they're engaging their mirror neurons, uh, right, with with, in, with someone else's situation, or perhaps there's some sort of a, you know, a, a, you know, emotional imbalance going on there. Like there's something, something is occurring, and to say like, oh, you know, d- don't cry, you know, people don't cry in this scenario. There's no crying in baseball or whatever the the, the trope happens to be. Um, I don't think that does any good. Right. Well, it's in situations where people are less concerned for others' well-being and yeah. more just concerned with what can you do for me right now? I need you to be like useful and functional. Right. It's it's when people are sort of looking at you in a more transactional way and just saying like, hey, I just need you to be on the ball. I don't really care what you're dealing with. Right. Which reminds me of an old uh, Upright Citizens Brigade sketch. Uh, we've probably mentioned this in the show before, The Bucket of Truth. Do you ever do you remember this from the uh, Upright no, Citizens Brigade TV show? Uh, the idea was that if there's this bucket, and if you look into the bucket of truth, you will you will confront uh, the unmitigated truth of the universe, and oh. it will overwhelm you, and then you will be unable to stop wailing and weeping. And so this would occur uh, to most of the characters in the skit. But then they have these these uh, these bits where I think they were going out in public and doing this like this uncontrolled weeping and uh, and, and screaming uh, mm. as if they had looked into the bucket of truth. But in, at least in one of the skits, it was while carrying out some other mundane task, which was always uh, always struck me as an interesting juxtaposition. And I couldn't really say why. And perhaps this is it. The idea that if you were fully engaging in emotional tears, they the this this is generally the focus of what you're doing. You're generally not doing something else. You're not like well, you know mailing envelopes or whatever happens to be the the case. Right, and uh, you know I think we can probably all say from experience that we're usually not at our most uh, functional and and uh, efficient while we're crying. Yeah. Unless, unless you're composing poetry, maybe, or a, or a beautiful song. There's so many great songs about crying. Uh, oh, it, no. I'd say even there, like, while you're crying, you're not in composition mode. It's only reflecting upon those feelings later yeah. that you're really good at writing about them. Yeah, okay. If you try to write about, if you ever tried to write about strong emotions while you're currently feeling them, I find it, it just doesn't work. Like, you can't really there's not much to say about them while you're feeling them. It's only thinking back on them later that you can talk about them. 
Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, the best, you know, if, if you, I guess it would, it would, you would tend to defeat it if you got into a good writing mode because you would get into the flow state and then you're, you're kind of removed from, from whatever emotional state might have prov- provoked it, um, at least moved from the experience of those emotions and put in a place where you can better reflect on them. Yeah. But obviously looking into a truth bucket is a different matter. Uh, yeah. I guess you just have to roll with it at that point. Uh, well, anyway, to round out my thoughts about helplessness as as a factor in tears, um, while I am pretty strongly convinced that helplessness is a major part of whatever would be the ultimate primary evolutionary explanation for them, helplessness obviously doesn't explain every case of tears, uh, or at least it, it seems difficult to. Like, you can imagine realistic crying scenarios where it is difficult to see how helplessness is relevant. Not impossible, but difficult. Uh, just to think of a, a very, a very uh, light example, um, you know, okay, what's a comment, what's a moment in a movie that often makes you cry? I think about like some of the m- moments in movies that make me cry the most are when a character who you didn't know if you could depend on, in fact, comes through. Uh, mm-hmm. So, for example, at the end of Star Wars, when Han Solo appears in the Millennium Falcon, you know, like that moment where he you thought he's left and, and gone off on his own, but he returns to to help his friends. The, those are like the moments that kind of like get the tears welling up in my eyes. And it's hard to see how that really relates to helplessness. Maybe you can make a kind of very abstract argument it has something to do with like needing the help of others. I, I'm not sure. Hmm. I, when I think about it, it's often like really tragic moments in films or, you know, the, the death of a protagonist, uh, like, you know, uh, the death of a key character in, in the mission uh, generally opens up the, t- the, the waterworks for me. Um, well, you know, very, you know, these kind of, these kind of moments are, oh, uh, I remember watching uh, The Untouchables and, uh, and uh, the part where Sean Connery's character dies. I remember Ooh, that yeah. being like real emotional when I was young. Also, that movie's super bloody. I don't know why I was watching that as a kid. But, um, <laughs> oh, there, were, there was another one that, that came to... Came oh, to, oh, oh, go what's ahead. The name of, what's the name of that actor who plays the, uh, who plays the assassin for, um, for Capone in The Untouchables? Oh, um, Drago? Drago, Billy Drago. Billy Drago, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's in he's in the movie Vamp as well. He 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 often played a, a very good a lizardy kind of I was villain. About to say, yeah. yeah, reptilian. Yeah, bad dude, bad dude in that film. Um, <laughs> Not the actor. <laughs> I also remember as a, as a young child watching Romancing the Stone. Uh, again, I I don't know why I was watching Romancing the Stone. I think I was probably too young for it. <laughs> but I remember crying when the villain died. Because huh. it was like, or appeared to die. Weirdly enough, I think it was he got his hand bit by um, by a crocodilian, mm. uh, uh, bit off. You know, kind of a Captain Hook moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was, I, and I think the part of that was it was just it was sort of violent and and terrifying, and therefore that was my emotional response to that. And I remember an adult that was there comforted me and it's like, no, look, he's okay, he's back to attack mm-hmm. the heroes. Um, and then I think he died again. I mean, if you're willing to get really abstract and stretch it around, I think you can come up with helplessness or powerless explanations for a lot of these, even so-called tears of joy or things in movies and so forth. Like, uh, I think about, you know, the tears of joy, like a parent experiences uh, observing their child do something for the first time. I mean, you could Mm -hmm. argue that maybe that has something to do with, like, feelings of being overwhelmed by the unstoppable passage of time, right? You know, time is just like beyond your control and, and you're seeing that development, uh, or, 
or just generally being overwhelmed by positive emotions, maybe just the fact that you are overwhelmed puts you in a in a sort of uh, strange state of powerlessness or helplessness, even though the feelings are good. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I should say that as far as uh, uh, evolutionary hypotheses about crying go, I know uh, Ad Vingerhoots himself has sort of advocated the idea that maybe adult emotional tears serve a kind of purpose uh, that is similar to what would be done with vocal crying by babies, eliciting uh, it's the social signal trying to elicit attachment behaviors and, and care from others, but that there may be a specific advantage for humans in the shedding of tears uh, instead of, say, loud vocal wailing in situations where you need to be more subtle and directed. Maybe you need to signal signal these strong emotional states and the need for help with just, say, like, one closely related person instead of making loud noises and drawing the attention of everyone and everything, maybe even local predators and stuff. So I don't know what I think about that, but also an interesting idea. Maybe tearful crying is a, is a more targeted way of displaying this infantile helplessness that, that elicits care responses. So at this point, I thought we might take a lot of what we've discussed here and take it into the, the realm of mythology and religion, uh, because uh, it, it just gives us another vantage point from which to try and figure all of this out. Now, in, in past episodes, you know, when we get into the realm of mythology and religion, we're often a lot more specific. Uh, for instance, uh, the idea of, say, a dog carrying a, a flaming stick. When you start looking for explanations of that, you know, you don't have as many cultures to, to, to go to. You, uh, you have perhaps more of a riddle as to why this is a thing. But when it comes to weeping in mythology and religion, when it comes to gods weeping, humans weeping, demigods and heroes weeping, like a, a lot of it, I guess, is kind of obvious. You know, we are humans. We weep. We create these, uh, these, 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 uh, these beings that are important to us, and of course they are going to weep, and they, the humans in our story and the human-like entities in our stories, they are going to weep as well. And, um, and on a certain level, you know, it might not even seem that fruitful to really examine the scenario much beyond that. But, uh, but I still think it's interesting to, to go into at least some of it and also look at some of the broader themes. So... We've discussed the importance of water in both life itself and in the sorts of myth cycles that humans build up about themselves and their origins. Life depends on water. Life is water. Uh, and one of the key aspects of tears is that they, they, tend, they tend to run clear or clearer than anything else that's going to secrete from a human being. Uh, they are like water. They are our body producing water. And so in, in, in mythology, especially, this is enough to connect the tears of mortals, but especially the, the tears of demigods and gods with the rain, with oceans, with rivers and floods. All of these, of course, are, are bodies of water that play heavily into myth cycles as well. Mm -hmm. I was reading about some of this in Pangean Flood Myths, Gondwana Myths and Beyond by Michael Eve Witzel. And the author points out the various tropes one finds in various religions concerning floods. Now, to be clear, there are floods in myth that are connected to urine, to blood, to the, to the, sp the, the spilt belly contents of a monster, to whale vomit. Uh, but one also finds various accounts where tears generate floodwaters or rains. And they might be the tears of gods or monsters or from Adam's tears of repentance. This would be Adam as in Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. uh, and also from the, the tears of grieving lovers. And there seem to be just numerous examples of these. 
uh, going back to a, an episode we did a long time ago causes me to think about the tears of Ray in Egyptian mythology, you know, the, mm. the tears of the sun god Ray uh, sort of falling to the ground and I believe becoming bees, the bees that uh, would be used for, for beekeeping, the making of wax and honey in ancient Egypt. Yeah, yeah. And indeed, we do see life emerging from various bodily secretions across the global mythic landscape, including blood, certainly, but also including tears. According to 20th century folklorist Stith Thompson in his book, The Folktale, it's part of the, the broader miraculous birth of the hero trope that one finds just throughout. And throughout North American tribal beliefs, there are numerous examples of it. Pregnancy caused by rain or caused by food, emergence from a dead mother, uh, from the ground or from a jug, but also the birth of a child from a clot of blood, from a splinter wound, quote, from tears or from other secretions of the body. And then interestingly enough, he also mentions uh, that, uh, uh, that most frequently uh, this is from mucus of the nose, uh, mm. again, in uh, North American tribal uh, beliefs. I, I found that interesting. We often don't think about the divine nature of the mucus. Yeah. But, oh man, I was just reading actually in um, Tales from a Chinese Studio, there's a, hmm. there's a wonderful uh, little story that pops up, so suitably weird, in which an individual is hanging out in his study, and, uh, and he, uh, you know, some sort of uh, a Chinese scholar, and he sneezes three times. Each time he sneezes, uh, he sneezes out a small creature, and then... Hmm. One of the creature eats the other, uh, eats another one, and gets a little bigger, and then that creature eats the remaining creature, uh, and, and, and finally you just have one like larger creature uh, that is formed of these different mucus beings, and then it begins crawling up the individual's leg, and then once it gets to uh, like the side of his torso, it like attaches to his body and becomes a part of him and just remains there, and you can sort of see the remnants of its eyes and its uh, mouth. Wow, that's body horror. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. And then, of course, it is, is the nature in those, uh, those stories. It's kind of like, yep, that happened. Uh, the end. <laughs> I love it. And the local governor made a report. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, now, speaking of Chinese uh, stories, uh, I, there is a, I did run across a very minor Chinese myth. I, I almost uh, I, I hesitated to include it because it's, it's ultimately kind of mundane. But I think it's also illustrative of how... Uh, of how tears and stories of tears can factor into just, just about every level of our uh, you know, explaining the world. So there's this story in Chinese mythology related by Yang, An, and Turner in the Handbook of Chinese Mythology, in which the demigod Emperor Shun dies, and his wives grieve for him by weeping and ripping out their hair. And the tears splatter on the bamboo, giving rise to a variety of speckled bamboo. Oh, Interesting. Sort of natural ideological myth having to do with tears. Yeah. Now, as far as uh, as tear as the tears of gods go, uh, you know, gods being largely human in conception, of course they're going to cry tears. And it's interesting how their tears are basically just supernatural amplifications of the roles that human tears play in uh, in many situations. For instance, in Greek tradition, Eos uh, weeps over the death of her son, Memnon, who dies at the hands of Achilles in the Trojan War. Uh, Zeus is moved by these tears and grants Memnon immortality. And then uh, the tears of Eos, the dawn, are also associated with the morning dew. Hmm. Now, I thought we might turn to Judeo-Christian traditions here uh, and consider the book of Jeremiah. Uh, so Jeremiah is, a, is often known as the weeping prophet, uh, but some interpret these tears as not only being the tears of Jeremiah, but also the tears of God. 
And I was reading about this in The Tears of God in the Book of Jeremiah by David A. Bosworth. This was uh, published in the journal Biblica in 2013. And the author makes a connection between this weeping, this idea of, of one weeping uh, with God, to God, and then the, the, the tears of, of God being part of this scenario, it makes a connection between this and attachment theory, which we've been, we discussed earlier. Um, so in this, the desired response to tears is empathy and support. Quote, Prayers often express a desire for proximity to the parent-like deity who provides a sense of security through superior power and wisdom. In distress, the deity offers help and divine absence provokes anxiety. Weeping enters into this relationship when people at prayer hope that tears may motivate divine aid. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, so the idea here is Jeremiah, it would follow, is drawing, uh, is, is, is drawing on the parent-child bond. Uh, when he is weeping, and you know this this ties in well with with the analysis of God beings in various uh, religions and myths as being a kind of sky parent, you know the idea mm-hmm. of the parent extrapolated into the supernatural realm, especially coming back to the helplessness theme I mean you can think about multiple levels of helplessness you can be in a situation where you are helpless on your own, but maybe somebody else could intervene and alleviate the situation. But there are also ways in which you could be helpless in a way that cannot possibly be alleviated. Like uh, say when a loved one has died, it's not like somebody can come and help you in or in like bringing them back from the dead or something. Yeah. They might be offer, able to offer you comfort, uh, but they can't actually fix what, you know, the cause of your pain and here, though, if you think about the idea of being able to appeal to a supernatural parent who's all-powerful, they could have the ability to actually fix things that, that go even beyond the powers of other people to help you with. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, in, in Jeremiah, we see this, for instance, Jeremiah 9.1. This is the King James Version. Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Now, the Hebrew God was not the first to weep, of course. Uh, The author points uh, out that several laments uh, from ancient Mesopotamia depict deities weeping over their cities. He points to the Eridu lament, which describes the weeping of the god Inki for the city of Eridu. Uh, This is in modern-day Iraq. Mm -hmm. Quote, Eridu's lord stayed outside his city as if it were an alien city. He wept bitter tears. Father Inky stayed outside his city as if it were an alien city. He wept bitter tears. For the sake of his harmed city, he wept bitter tears. Bosworth also shares a couple of other examples featuring female deities weeping for their cities. But, uh, but Mesopotamian gods also wept for each other. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, we see examples of this. Ishtar weeps over the death of the bull of heaven. And in other epics, two gods weep over a great flood. And uh, uh, Enlil weeps, quote, over the misery of the gods and then makes humans do their work. I was still just thinking about this, uh, this passage you read from the Eridu Lament, which is interesting because it uh, it includes the idea of weeping as a result of separation outside mm-hmm. the city as if it were an alien city. Yeah. Um, so again, that role of like the un- being unable to sort of bring the parent and child together, the, like the separation causes the weeping. Yeah. Now Bosworth also touches on Egyptian weeping gods. Uh, Isis weeps for her son Horus and her husband Osiris. Uh, so in short, there's there's a just a plethora of weeping deities in the region predating the Hebrew God. Uh, So it stands to reason that this God too would weep 
uh, as part of its relationship with its people, with its children, or what have you. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, he also points to an Ugaritic text from Ugarit, an ancient port city in northern Syria, that uh, discusses the brain as the source of tears. Quote, son, do not cry. Do not shed tears for me. Spin not the flow of your eyes, nor the brains of your head with your tears. The brains of your head. That's great. Yeah. Uh, th this is an interesting thing also that a lot of sayings about tears talk about them as if there's a kind of economy involved, like spending tears is like spending money. Like you have mm -hmm. a, like you have a, uh, you know, a sort of finite supply of them and you shouldn't spend them on this or that. Yeah. And I guess, you know, a lot of that is connecting. I mean, on one hand, uh, you know, there's the idea of crying oneself out that mm -hmm. after an emotional outburst, there will become, there will come an end to it. You'll at least be exhausted with it for the time being. Uh, and also the idea that, you can only, I mean, how much emotion, how much empathy do we have to go around? How much empathy can we have uh, for, uh, you know, for, for those around us and those outside of our, our sort of sphere of, of community? Uh, you know, I guess it ties into those various discussions. Uh, but it, it begins, it gets complicated, right? Because, again, we have this strong connection between this, this physical response and the idea of, of human emotion and human empathy and suffering uh, and, you know, all these 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 ultimately kind of lofty human concepts that are then further, uh, further uh, complicated by by human culture, human religion, human mythology and, and more. Well, yeah. And this raises another really interesting question about uh, the, the purpose of tears, because you can think about tears on the other side of the equation, right? Like it seems very clear that tears have something to do with. A, a person who is helpless or feels themselves to be in some kind of state of helplessness or powerlessness trying to elicit care from others. But tears come on the other side, too, right? Like you have empathetic tears when you witness somebody else in a state of uh, in a state of helplessness or uh, going through loss or something like that. So so clearly there's this more complex response that's bound up in in witnessing the pain or struggles of others or even people weeping when they're helping other people a kind of mirroring behavior there yeah and in this i want to come back to a book i mentioned uh, holy tears weeping in the religious imagination by Patton and hawley or edited by Patton and hawley uh which uh, is another one of these books if you want more on this topic uh this is a good one to pick up but it goes into a great great deal more detail than we're getting into here uh, but but in that, uh, one thing that struck me reading that is that, yeah, there's not just one way of interpreting how weeping factors into religious tradition. Uh, and, and one of the big ones here is you can roughly divide actual ritualized weeping by worshipers into two categories, spontaneous weeping and non-spontaneous weeping. The difference being that certain religious settings might cause one, of course, to be overcome by grief or emotion and commence to weep spontaneously. But then there are plenty of cultures in which weeping at, say, a funeral is not merely okay. It's not merely permitted as just this kind of random emotional uh, or even expected emotional outburst that could occur. But it is also right and proper and even, in some cases, expected. Uh, plus, while funerary weeping might largely feel like an individual experience in many cultures, uh, uh, both for us 
and of us. But there are plenty of cultures where it is seen as a communal outpouring and one that is less about us and more about the community or about the spirits of the dead. Uh, you know, it, it, it gets into these ideas of, of signaling uh, that I'm, 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 I'm communicating with my community and I'm even perhaps attempting to communicate with those who have passed on or to draw in on some of these uh, ideas of, of appealing to deities, uh, speaking to them, speaking, you know, cosmologically. Uh, and, and in that, you know, you get into this uh, divide of uh, social versus existential protest. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's how the the authors here refer to it. Well, yeah, that a crying could be explicitly performative, a performance in a way that, you know, sometimes people would hear that and say, oh, performative crying, that means it's like fake or something. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it wouldn't be any more fake than, say, getting up in front of, in front of a crowd and saying something about your remembrances of a lost loved one would be like – because that is explicitly performing for other people on purpose, does that mean what you're saying isn't true or that yeah. the feelings aren't real? Well, no. I mean, it's just a, a, it's a way of uh, viewing what you're doing as a display for other people, for them to experience as well and also engage in. It's social bonding. Um, the fact that someone would cry in order to be seen crying and heard crying by other people around them doesn't necessarily mean that the crying is in some way manipulative or false. Right, yeah. So we have this private versus public divide, spontaneous versus non-spontaneous. Um, and so, so again, coming back to the idea of like crocodile tears, I feel like that uh, is, I, I mean, not to say, I guess, there couldn't be a situation where someone's tears are, 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 are inauthentic. But for the most part, you know, it seems like if there are tears going on, there's some sort of an emotional response going on. There's some there's some sort of an emotional situation. You know, it maybe it's an actor summoning some sort of uh, you know past or or you know somehow tapping into their 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 emotional catalog to mm-hmm. reproduce the physical act of, of of weeping. Perhaps you know if it's a paid mourner, for example, at a at a funeral, then in that case, you know they are weeping for the dead and they're 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 connecting with uh, the expectations of of this religion just right and perhaps their own experiences, but it's not like there is not an emotional core to what's happening. Well, I don't know. This may be a difference in our experience of how the term is used. I mean, I, I, I don't think I would ever apply the term crocodile tears to somebody who was like uh, mourning at a funeral, even if they were doing so in a performative way. It seems like I, I most often encounter that phrase used to describe perceived false uh, sort of weeping by someone who has caused the very harm they are allegedly weeping over. Oh, like, okay. Uh, well, I was just thinking, imagining the same thing. Like what if Jack the Ripper went to a funeral, right? Yeah. Okay. Or, or what if Jack the Ripper, what if Jack the Ripper got caught and then cried in court saying like, Oh, please don't punish me. I'm so remorseful for my mm-hmm. actions uh, and people would say like, yeah, how remorseful are you really? Are you just trying to manipulate us by, by crying? Well, I mean, you put me in a difficult position of defending Jack the Ripper. <laughs> if I'm going to say, say that, no, their tears absolutely, I, mean, I don't know. That's a more complex situation, right? Well, we're getting yeah. into, uh, you know, to what degree do we uh, afford uh, these kind of emotional states to, uh, uh, to, to criminals, to convicted criminals and, and so forth. Uh, but I guess the counter question is, is there a situation where the individual in that scenario is absolutely feeling no emotional state to produce those tears? Like, even if they're, they're ultimately only feeling sorry for themselves, it's still an emotional outpouring. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not a situation of like the crocodile has no emotion and therefore its (laughs) tears are not to be trusted. Perhaps the emotions are misplaced uh, or at least that is the argument. That's the argument that could be made. I mean, ultimately, I guess who who knows what's going on within the the mind of the accused in this situation. But uh, but it's certainly not a situation of of the crocodile. Well, I I wouldn't blame a crocodile for eating heads, but uh. (laughs) (laughs) but they're so they're so unsatisfying. There's so little meat. (laughs) So crunchy. I got to say, actually, while we were reading about uh, crocodile tears, I came across a thing that really did make me feel super sad for crocodiles. And it was uh, it was also in that uh, the Vingerhoots book with the section about the history of of the concept of crocodile tears. Uh, And he's talking about a uh, a book called On the Nature of Animals by a Roman author from the second and third century named uh, uh, Elian or Elianus who does describe weeping in crocodiles, but not in the context of, of any kind of like uh, hypocrisy or anything like that. Instead, he talks about, uh, he claims there is an Egyptian city called Edfu, also known as uh, Apollopolis, where, uh, where people catch crocodiles out of the river and then they hang them up on trees and just beat them. They beat them with like whips and stuff and the crocodiles mm. cry. And when I read that, I was like, oh, buddies. That's, that's yeah, that's not good. Don't beat those crocodiles. If you take anything away from this this podcast uh, episode, it's don't be don't be cruel to crocodilians. <laughs> of course not. Yeah. Also, don't be like you know. I mean, don't be super nice, as in like feeding them, uh, because that's also being mean to crocodiles. If you're yeah. uh, you're feeding them human food and le- leading them to associate humans with food, w- whether or not it looks like they're crying, just leave them alone. Leave them alone. Let them do the, their thing. You do your thing. Uh, let's keep the distance. All right, we're going to go ahead and close this episode out here. Obviously, we, we'd love to hear from everyone out there about tears and uh, certainly uh, the, the various hypotheses that we discussed here today and the religious connotations. And I know we, we've already heard from a lot of people, so we're going to be talking about some of this in future listener mail installments. I know we've already heard from someone saying, hey, how about Dune? How about the the Fremen? Uh, uh, what's their deal with crying? So uh, uh, we'll talk about that specifically uh, probably on the next Listener Mail episode. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, our core episodes air on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, Artifact on Wednesday, rerun on the weekend, Listener Mail on Monday, and then on Friday we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most of the serious contemplation and just focus in on a weird movie. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nick. Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.